0: Missio, your scripture is 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience on the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not wa- not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal.
1: Hey, Missio. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. As you have heard a bunch, but should here again, we're so thankful that you get to worship with us, even in this kind of strange, disconnected, internet way. We're still thankful for the opportunity, so thankful for the work that has gone into making this a reality uh, every single week, and every week we're learning and you know, trying to figure it out, and so super thankful for those things. Um, we are, right now, in a series entitled Mountains Made of Clay, mountains, you can tell I'm a Utahan. And uh, walking through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we are currently in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, this letter is one of Paul's letters to an early church. And if you've read some of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, if you read Ephesians or Philippians, and then you're coming to 2 Corinthians, you can tell pretty quickly that it is a different kind of letter. That something about this letter is deeply personal to Paul. It's like the way he talks, the language that he uses when he's communicating with the church, the kind of words he's using, the sentiments, even the order of thought feels different than some of his other letters. You compare it to Romans, which is like this high and lofty theological argument, and then you come to 2 Corinthians, and there's something deeply emotional and empathetic and personal. Not that it's not full of rich and wonderful like, truths and teachings and theology, it is, but there's something deeply real and sensitive. And that's because this letter comes from Paul's own suffering, to a people that he deeply loves but has a difficult and contentious relationship with. And as you've seen over the last couple of weeks, the difficulty of this relationship is a struggle that the Corinthians have to see Paul, the world, God, even themselves, through the work that God is doing in the midst of them. It's a struggle to, to, to gain a new imagination, a gospeled imagination, a kingdom imagination, a new covenant imagination, whatever you want to call it. It's a struggle to take this new thing that God has done in the midst of them and apply it to their lives and see through the lens of this new amazing thing that God is doing. And instead of seeing out of this new imagination, they live out of something that is smaller and older. They are stuck somewhere between the old and the new, and it is affecting every part of their lives. It affects how they gather at the table, how they practice communion, how they reconcile or actually refuse to reconcile with those who have been excluded from the community, and it impacts how they see authority, how they think about power and hierarchy and the values of the local church. And so Paul is attempting to help them see that to name that struggle, to name that old school imagination, and to invite them into this new thing that God has already done in the midst of them, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is present, the Spirit has been poured out in their midst. And he's trying to invite them to say, like, what does it look like for this to be your reality, not simply this? But maybe the biggest problem for them to understand that is actually how they see Paul himself. Because the Corinthian church is deeply skeptical of the person of Paul. And so every time he brings these words, he's like, hey, I want you to see something new. They're like, yeah, hold up a second, but we don't trust you. And so why would we trust what you're saying about the new kingdom? Why would we trust what you're saying about the spirit? Why would we trust this like new work that God is doing if we can't trust you? The Corinthians do not trust Paul. They question his authority and they are therefore skeptical of his words. Now, why don't they trust him? Well, because Paul is honest about his weakness, his fragility, his monotony. He'll say this in kind of like a moment of being pretty sassy in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 5. He's comparing himself to the people the church at Corinth does respect, and he calls them super apostles. He says this. He says, I do not think that I am in the least inferior to those super apostles I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but do I have knowledge? Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you for free? See, the issue that the Corinthian church is wrestling with is that Paul does not fit expectations or assumptions of what a teacher or a leader or an apostle should be in their midst. Corinth expects Fancy rhetoric. They're living in Greek. And this is the time of, like, famous rhetoric, Cicero. And, you know, Aristotle writes a book on rhetoric, and so they're expecting this, like, notion that his language will be high and soaring and it'll call them into something. And he's like, I don't don't do that. I'm a tent maker. I'm just here to speak plainly to you. They expect letters of recommendation. And a few weeks ago, Heather talked about how he was like, I don't have a letter of recommendation. You're my, like the human people in Corinth, that's my letter of recommendation. They even expect to be charged because it's like there's some authority that comes with like a huckster who shows up and charges you money for his teaching. And he's like, I didn't do that either. I didn't have soaring rhetoric. I didn't come in fancy clothes. I don't have a letter of recommendation. I don't have certificates. I don't have degrees. And I'm not charging you anything. And they're like, yeah, we don't trust you. And so they have this trouble seeing him in his ordinariness, his common speech. And so they don't trust him. They're skeptical of him. And for Corinth, This is a problem with Paul. It's a problem that Paul doesn't bring something to the table. But Paul says, no, this is a problem with you. This is a problem with how you see the world, a problem with how you understand reality, a problem with how you think about the gospel. This isn't a problem with me. This is a problem with your heart and imagination." Your expectations and your assumptions about glory and authority have blinded you, and they stop you from seeing what God is up to in your midst. This is a reoccurring theme, not just in Corinthians, but all throughout the story of the Bible. Not only does it happen and to Paul, it happened to Jesus. If you look at the Gospel of John and John 1 verse 9, it's literally how the Gospel introduces Jesus. It says the true light, which is Jesus, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The world had expectations and assumptions about who Jesus was supposed to be and it literally stopped them from recognizing the person who created the whole thing? And just as it happened then, it happens now. We bring to the story of the Bible, the gospel, to its leaders, to its ideas, to its teachings, to its hope and imagination, our own cultural expectations and assumptions, which means that just like Corinth, we so often struggle to understand what Jesus is up to, what he's doing and how he's doing it, and through whom he's doing it, and where he's doing it. This is the issue for Paul, it's the issue for the church in Corinth, and it is unfortunately so often our issue. So this is what Paul is taking shots at in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And to get there, to like begin to have this conversation with them, he begins talking about his own authority, talking about himself, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 2, he says this. He says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. He's like, we don't use tricks, we don't use lasers, we don't use fog machines. We proclaim the message of Jesus to you plainly. And here's why, verse five, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He's like, the power of this message isn't us, it's Jesus. It's him we proclaim, it's him we tell about, it's why we're here. It is the goodness and power of the creator who, Paul says, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. He's like, this is the thing that like we proclaim Jesus because it's a thing that he's doing. It's a thing that he's accomplishing. It's not our own strength or our own merits or our own weightiness or our own skills or how cool our fog machine is. It's this thing that God is doing in the midst of us that we get to participate in. And so that's why we come plainly. And then this is the crescendo of the moment. He says, we are but jars of clay with this treasure to show that this all-surpassing in power is from God and not from us. We are ordinary, fragile, filled with treasure. Now, this is so challenging to the people of Corinth because I think them, and I think us, we want it to be the other way around. They want the vessel, Paul, to be adorned with treasure. They want the outside to be beautiful and majestic and, like, culturally glorious. They want it to be covered in jewels or whatever, you know. Like, I don't know what first century Greek Corinth think is the drip, but they want him to have it. And Paul switches it around. They want Paul to be amazing. They want him to bring credentials. They want him to use soaring rhetoric. And so often we want the same. We want Jesus, his message, his people to look away as valued by our culture. Whether that's conservative or liberal, we want this thing to look a very specific way. And I think the most insidious way this shows up, the most like secretive, hard to name, hard to identify, whether it's left or right or whatever kind of bias it is, what we really want is to be insiders. We want to be insiders. Corinth wants Paul to look like famous Greek teachers. Corinth is a big city. They want their own movement, this way, this cult of Jesus followers to look like the philosophers' communities that surround them, the famous groups around them. They want it to look like that and fit into those things. They want to be an insider to Corinth culture. And for them, that weight is on Paul wanted Paul to validate and conform to the structures of Greek culture. So they take Jesus and his way and his people, and they drag him through Corinthian way. Now, we don't live in Corinth. That's not our life. That's not our habits. That's not our culture. But we so often do the same thing. We want to be insiders to the culture around us. There was an article that came out this week from Comment Magazine, I think it's called A Letter to America. If you haven't read it, it's really, really powerful. And the woman who's writing it, she's actually talking about the role of prophets in the church. But I think if you just add the word Christian, it really names what it is that we're talking about. She says this, quote, Prophets, or Christians, are peripheral. They put feet to faith. They go to the margins. Jesus did not accidentally go through Samaria. Prophets, they hastened the places of pariahs and lepers. And here's the part that I think stings so much. Too many of us are content to be insiders, even self congratulatory about arriving at the pinnacle of power. End quote. I think that stings so hard because it is easy for us to uncritically live the values of our culture. To just like Corinth, to baptize cultural values, cultural assumptions, cultural expectations in the way of Jesus. And all of a sudden, it is almost impossible for us to to draw lines between where does Jesus end and this thing around me begins? Where does the way of Jesus stop actually informing the life that I'm living and it is now just enveloped in a vessel of culture? And the trick is, I think we often, it's like, it is, it is just so hard to even identify. We don't think about our security, our comfort, our wealth, our accumulation. More often than not, we actually celebrate all of it as wisdom and stewardship and grace. And so the tricky part for Corinth and for us is not simply being able to say, like, this is where Jesus' vessel is and this is where culture's vessel is. It's that they're so intertwined and one is celebrated that it's like beginning to parse the places out. Understanding where we have absorbed without ever even realizing. And the problem for us, at least one of many problems, is that like it does for the Corinthians, it obscures our view of God and what God is doing and where God is moving and where God is working and how God is working in the midst of us. We bring not only to Paul and to the story and to Jesus expectations and assumptions, but then we bring it to every moment of our lives and all the things that we're watching and all the things that we're paying attention to. And so we miss where God is actually working. This is basically what Paul begins to say next, talking about his own kind of experience. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What Paul is saying is that the very thing the Corinthians despise, this weakness, this fragility, this vulnerability, is the thing that reveals the work of Jesus. And he's like, so if you have this assumption that it's like power is the way that we do this or glory is the way that we do this or wealth is the way that we do this, then you will totally miss how upside down the way of Jesus' kingdom is because I carry it and reveal it when I am broken. And I carry it and I reveal it when I'm fragile. And I carry it and I reveal it in my humanity, not in this cultural pump. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the all-surpassing power of God. Corinth wants the kingdom and power and wealth and security covered in the grandeur of culture, but Paul says no in the fragility and obscurity of the kingdom. In the fragility, in the obscurity, in the unraveling, in the weakness, in the monotony, in the normal, in the washing, in the wearing, and in the closed relationships of our neighborhood, He's like, that's where the kingdom is. That is where the kingdom is. In the dying and the poverty is the kingdom. In the lives that carry the death of Jesus is the kingdom. Paul is doing for the church at Corinth and for us is he is deconstructing our vision of him and his work and what God is up to in the world. He's challenging our attempts to conform to culture, challenging our attempts to force ourselves into something, to force others into something, and most importantly, to force God into something. he's doing it by calling us instead into participation in the life and death of Jesus. Now, I think, like, in one moment, that's, like, really beautiful, and it's amazing, but it it also, like, even as I say it, it can feel kind of heavy. Like, participation in the life of Jesus, like, didn't Jesus die? Like, that feels heavy. And and Jesus was God, and so you're like, well, that's also heavy, because, I mean, you know, and so you're like, what do we do with that? Like, what do I, how do I unravel that? How do I make sense of that? And Paul actually, he then, he, he keeps pressing us into something. He's like, I'm inviting you into the life of Jesus. He's like, but I know that's hard. So in verse 16, he says this. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Why? Because though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. He's like, just like this ministry isn't about Paul, but is about God, revealing what God is doing. In the same way, we have been filled with the Spirit of God and are being renewed as we participate. And it is that renewal, that healing, that work that is happening in the midst of, that is helping display the work of God. On Easter, we talked about um, how Jesus' scars that he shows to his disciples after the resurrection reveal the story of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and that we actually get to do the same thing, that it reveals God's work in the midst of us. And similarly here, he's like, God is at work renewing you. And it's, so it's not through your perfection, it's not through being able to be awesome, it's not through carrying the weight of 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 like Jesus's exact kind of existence is about participating and God working in the midst of you. And he's like, and that's where the revealing begins to play. It's in God repairing and healing and renewing. And through God's transforming work in our lives, we pour out the treasure in those vessels of clay. But he's not done. He's like, we are being renewed day by day. But then he also says in verse 14. We do this because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. So it's like you have this spirit that is at work renewing you, that is at work healing, that is committed to you, that is like doing something in the midst of you as this thing unravels and unfolds and you're trying to trust him. But at the same time, there is this hope that is bigger than our existence right here and now. That one day the fragility of our humanity will be redeemed in total. That death and disease and our wrestling with sin and evil will be redeemed in total. To here and now we bear the marks of healing, which then points us to a moment of resurrection. And so he says, we know, like we have this spirit that's at work renewing us day by day and we long for this total renewal and those two things together help us sustain hope. But he's still not done. He says in verse 15 this, he's like, and also this is for your benefit, talking to the church at Corinth, so that grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. So it's like, you have this thing that's working in you, you have this hope that is to come, and you have a thing you're called into now. God is beckoning you to join him. That as you experience healing, you would, like jars of clay, pour that healing out for others, spreading the gift of God's glory to the world around you. It's like, there's this thing that, that God is doing in the midst of us. And what these three things do, this like, renewal, mission and hope to come he's like what this does is it grounds us in hope the the best metaphor i can think of is like a garden that when you're a gardener which my wife is doing a lot of gardening lately so COVID 19 has made possible i see on your instagram that you are also doing a lot of garden great work looks great but like a garden we live in that moment like Deeply immersed. Our hands are in the soil. You're tilling. You're pulling weeds. You're, you know, you're maybe before that, you're building garden boxes. You're like present. And then as you do that, you watch and participate as the garden begins to produce life. There's a renewal to the soil. But you do that with your hope that there will be a harvest, that there's an end to the gardening process. You get the fruit and you're going to go inside and you're going to make a, a dope salsa. That's what I'm going to do. So you have this present work, this ongoing thing, and this hope at the end of it. And that hope that is both here, ongoing, and moving forward, it re-embeds and it re-embodies our faith back into this moment, back into real people, back into real place, into actually trusting God. And as we do that, as we unfold that, it challenges our assumptions about self and others. It challenges the way that we tend to treat God in our own self. And in the middle of it all, there's a hope that sustains us. So this is what God is inviting us into, what Paul is inviting the, the Corinthian church into, to give up their old imagination, their old way of seeing, and to see through this new thing that God is doing. To deconstruct all that cultural nonsense they want to bring into the story of Jesus, the values and expectations that make us miss him. So just as we wrap up, a couple of questions for you. What assumptions and expectations do you place on yourself, on others, and even on Jesus? What assumptions do you bring to the table? This is so hard to name. It's so hard to discern. And so maybe bring this question to community, bring it to the people that you love. Have a a moment where you're reading God's story and you're discerning with people around you to actually begin to name, where do we bring assumptions that do not belong? Where do we baptize backwards values in the name of Jesus? Second, how do those assumptions stop you from experiencing God's work? Like if you can name some of it, and if you can compare it even to just this passage, like how do they conflict with one another? How do they cause conflict? If you're really naming it, if you're really seeing it, where would it start to cause tension? And what can you do this week to challenge those assumptions and participate in Jesus? What can you do this week to put your hands in this moment to trust that God is renewing you and to look towards the ultimate hope of resurrection? One way to begin to do that is if you're in your home and you have the, the elements of communion, like that's what communion does for us. Right, there's this like thing you eat right here, right now, because God has invited you to his, to his table. But it points you towards the ultimate hope of an ultimate feast and an ultimate celebration and an ultimate resurrection. So, Missio, as you think about what are the practices and habits that can help you participate in Jesus, well, begin right now, right here at the table, by yourself, with your family, with your friends, your housemates, whoever it is, to be immersed in this moment, with an eye on what God is doing next. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are with us. God, as we hear today and as we sing today and as we hear your story and read it and think over it and wrestle with it, would you challenge the assumptions and expectations that we bring to you? that actually stop us from experiencing you, that stop us from knowing you, that stop us from um, knowing your people? Would you challenge that and show us what it is that it looks like to actually be a participant in you? The freedom of that, the hope of that, and the calling of that. In your name we pray. Amen.